Infant Adoption Guide Podcast, episode number eight, an adoption story with Monica, a birth mother and blogger. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Infant Adoption Guide Podcast. My name is Tim Elder, and this is the podcast dedicated to those of you who are dreaming of becoming parents through domestic infant adoption. That's right. Uh, I am an adoptive daddy myself. Uh, my wife and I were, were blessed to be able to adopt uh, both of our children as newborns. And my goal for this podcast is just to help you shorten the time, decrease the cost, and have less stress in you reaching your dream of adopting. And on today's episode, I am so excited to have our very first birth mother interview with Monica. She shares her heart, uh, an amazing story she has uh, about becoming a mother, how she did it, how she decided to choose adoption for her little girl and how she shares an open adoption with uh, the adoptive parents. I think as hopeful adoptive parents, uh, listening to Monica's story is just an amazing insight into, um, how a birth mother thinks about adoption the terms we use, um, how open adoption works. And Monica is very passionate about open adoption, as you'll hear. So I really am excited for you to hear the interview. So let's get into it right now. Okay, everybody. I am so excited today to be talking with Monica. She is a birth mother and a blogger, and she currently lives in Washington State with her long-term boyfriend, Nick, and they enjoy an open adoption with their three-year-old daughter and her adoptive parents. And one of Monica's greatest passions is discussing ethical adoption reform on her blog, Monica's Musings. It's at www.musingmonica.com, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes. But she's been quoted in a new book called The Open-Hearted Way to Open Adoption by Lori Holden, which is an excellent book. We can get into talking more about that in a little bit. But she also wrote an article that uh, about open adoption that was recently published in Creating Families, which is a Canadian magazine of reproductive health. And just a few, or actually yesterday, uh, she allowed me to repost one of her articles, one of her great articles on Infant Adoption Guide blog called 10 Things That Birth Mothers, or Birth Moms Hate. So I, I think it was an awesome title so go check it out and the link to her original post on her website's there too. So welcome Monica to the infant adoption guide podcast. Thank you. It's good to have you. You know, you get to be the first birth mother we've ever had on the podcast. So what a distinction. <laughs> that is. Hopefully I'm not the last. <laughs> no, no, I don't think so. Hopefully we can have many more because it really gives an awesome insight to the world of adoption to adoptive parents, which is most of the people that listen to this podcast. So I think it's going to be very powerful for you, for them to hear your story and to answer some of the questions that we're going to go through. I think it's going to be a great, uh, great insight and understanding into what goes on in the adoption process. So if you would, please uh, share your story for everyone. Okay. Well, um, in 2009, I met Nick at the beginning of the year, and uh, we very quickly figured out that we had something pretty special. We didn't intend to uh, 
get into a serious relationship. Neither one of us were looking for it at that point, but it quickly happened and we're together. Um, he was in the army at the time, scheduled to deploy in July. And um, I was uh, in a place in my life where I was, uh, I didn't have a, a steady home. I was staying with friends and are with a friend and um, didn't have an income or means of providing for myself. And uh, I, uh, in May of that year, I moved down to Oregon. I had been based in Washington, which is where I met Nick. And I moved down to Oregon uh, near Oregon State University to stay with a girlfriend while Nick was deployed. We had talked about that and, um, and I uh, thought it would be a good situation for me while he was gone. And um, so I moved down there to be with her and um, talked to Nick a lot uh, via Yahoo. Once he deployed, he was in Iraq for the third time. He actually was on the base where he was located. He had access to Internet in his in his little room and he would get on Yahoo and chat with me um, daily and once a week he would call me on the phone and um, and having been diabetic since 1994 I hadn't had a period and I didn't see, even think I could be pregnant because there would be there was many times when I would skip many months of, of having a period and nothing would come of it and I was also doing some insulin adjusting at the time to some medication adjustments at the time too. So um, it didn't strike me as odd that I was throwing up every morning. Um, so um, about the night, the night of November 9th, I talked to Nick before I went to bed. And that's the last thing I really remember. November 10th, I apparently had a seizure. My roommate um, at the time called 911 when she couldn't rouse me, and I kept having seizures on the way to the hospital. Um, there, they wanted to do a test on my brain that required them to know whether I was pregnant or not. The medics in the ambulance had no suspicion that I was pregnant. The um, ER techs, nobody in the ER thought that I could be pregnant. They just needed to do a test to make make sure that I wasn't before they tested my brain because they had no medical history on me. So they had no way to know that seizures were not a typical thing for me to do. And, um, and, uh, and they did, they did the test, found out I was pregnant, sent me over to have a, uh, an ultrasound figured out as about 36 weeks and that my baby was breached. And then they sent me up for an emergency C-section. I still don't remember a lot of that hospital stay, except for bits and pieces of the actual C-section as if the dream had happened. I mean, like that wasn't, it wasn't, there wasn't anything that, there's still no concrete um, memories. It's just dreamlike. And I don't remember anything from November 10th to when that happened to November 14th when I was released from the hospital. So, <laughs> so yeah, so it's kind of an impactful story. I went from not thinking anything of the fact that I was throwing up every morning and stuff like that to having a baby. And uh, even though I was 34 at the time of my daughter's birth, um, I knew that I was not mentally or emotionally or physically equipped to raise a child. I had been a nanny for 
uh, many, many, many years um, in my early or late teens, early 20s, and I uh, knew exactly what went into the care of a child. And I knew that I was not in a place to do so. Nick, I knew Nick would have supported, he would have figured it out. We would have figured it out if the physical, if the, if the worrying about the actual financial support was my only concern. However, I assumed at that point that if we stayed together, that he would stay in the military and he would be deploying for a year every other year. I did not want to be a single parent. I know many people who who are successful single parents. However, I knew that I could not. I was having a hard enough time emotionally handling him being gone for deployment. And I didn't think that I could support a child emotionally during that time when her daddy was gone. So that along with the fact that um, that. Due to my upbringing, I was concerned about some of the emotional ramifications of that upbringing being turned over on my daughter. I didn't want to have some of the things that happened to me be repeated to her, and uh, which was the main one of the main reasons is that I didn't feel emotionally prepared to be a parent. And there's a lot more that goes into it than just being financially stable or whatever, because finances can change. Situations can change. People can lose jobs. People get divorced. People can, you know, people, you know, off subject kind of is that, you know, the adoption industry as a whole, adoption agencies tell, tell uh, expectant mothers considering adoption that their child will be better off without them. That, you know, they're, they're, they're going to give their child to, to parents who are stable and who have jobs and whatever else, but what they don't, what they leave out is the fact that that can change. Life changes. So, so it wasn't, it was more to me, it was more the emotional preparedness or lack thereof that went into a huge decision of, of um, relinquishing my daughter. Now, um, because I was still having seizures in the hospital, I actually did not see her, um, once they delivered her, I chose not to see her or name her in the hospital because my only understanding of adoption was from my father's point of view. He was a closed adoption adoptee, and um, and my that was my only understanding of adoption. I had no idea that open adoptions were even a possibility, that I might be able to see my daughter, that I might you know, be able to have contact with her as she grows. And so I thought that seeing her, holding her, naming her, all that kind of other stuff would make it harder for me to keep the decision that I'd made. And um, so, but because of the fact that I was having seizures, they weren't sure, the state was not sure that I was in the right frame of mind to make a decision that I did. So they put her, she was ready to go before I was. She was ready to leave the hospital two days after she was born and I was not ready to go yet. And so they put her in state foster care and I had to make a couple of court appearances to prove that I was mentally and physically capable to make the decision that I wanted to make. And uh, during that time, I met with a rep from Boys and Girls Aid out of Portland, Oregon, and uh, they are a state, uh, a nonprofit adoption agency, and they also work with the state heavily with the state foster care system, and um, and uh, 
she they uh I met with one of one of their caseworkers and she's the one that actually introduced the idea of open adoption to me. And she basically said that because I was so firm, which we've talked since then, because I was so firm on the idea of closed adoption that she didn't approach it to me like she usually does. She she said, well, you might be able to get letters or pictures of your daughter as she grows. And that was basically my understanding was that, oh, I might actually be able to see what my daughter is doing. And that would be kind of cool. And uh, the first time I actually met my daughter was about a month after she was born. Um, she, we, we all met at an office in uh, downtown Corvallis. And um, I spent about an hour there holding her. She slept the entire time that I held her. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and um and I spent a whole about you know an hour talking to talking to my adoption caseworker and uh, things like that. That was actually the first court date that I went to as well. She picked me up for the court date, and then we met my daughter. And then and um, the second time I saw my daughter was the day I relinquished her to her parents. And uh, I had had a court date that morning. And they released her to my custody and basically said, you're capable of making the decision you want to make. And I'd also had uh, surprise visits from from uh, DSHS and things like that, so that they are Department of Child Welfare, so that they could, you know, see me in my, you know, when I wasn't prepared to do an interview, sort of, so to speak. And, um, and, um, and they said that, uh, you know, and uh, that actually I remember the um, the Department of Child Welfare person saying to me that I was not the typical person and that if if most of the people that knew about my situation had their way, we would not have to be doing this. <laughs> so, so it was uh it was very much they were very but they were very they're very concerned about making sure that that uh that no precedent is set in other words you know if that got out that we skipped all the legal stuff basically then then they might have other people expecting the same thing when they don't necessarily have the same situation that i had and so during that time i saw my uh i told state uh my caseworker that um that um um, what I wanted. She basically asked me some of the things that I was looking for in an adoptive family for my daughter. And a uh, stable relationship was one of the main ones. I also wanted uh, a Christian couple, not necessarily a religious Christian couple, because I believe that there is a difference, but just that they believe that there is a God and that they would raise her as I was raised in a very religious household, that they would raise her with the same belief. And, um, and, um, and, uh, and family was a huge thing for me. Uh, my parents are still together um, after, what is it? A long time of marriage. <laughs> <And>, uh, <laughs> I can never remember. Years and years. <laughs> 39. Yes. I think it's 40 years now. Um so they've been together for a really, really long time. And I wanted the same thing for my daughter. I wanted her to grow up even though 
my dad had some issues, which he has now gone through a lot of counseling for. I wanted that same thing for my daughter. I wanted her to be able to see her parents. I wanted her to see her, to grow up with, with a mom and a dad in her life all the time. If at all possible, I mean, I realize the divorce has happened, but if at all possible, I wanted that stable relationship already in place because I figured if they were going through the whole thing of figuring out adoption and figuring out whatever had led them to, you know, to adoption, that, that if they can make it this far, they probably have the tools to make it farther. And, uh, and so that was, so she showed me one profile and it was my daughter's adoptive parents. And um, she said she brought the profile down. She said that, you know, this was not my only choice. If I didn't like them, that I could pick others. But I saw the profile and I liked it instantly. I felt really drawn to them. Actually, my daughter's adoptive mother reminds me a lot looks-wise and personality-wise of my sister. And actually, my daughter's adoptive dad looks a lot like my daughter's, my, like my, my uh, brother-in-law. So, so, so not the same people, but I think that's part of the reason that part of drew me to them is because they felt familiar. They felt like family, you know, it felt like, oh yeah, I can kind of get this. And I didn't meet them. I didn't talk to them. I was actually open to talking to them at least before, before placement day. And I found out later that they were as well. Unfortunately, there were some issues with their caseworker at the agency and the ball got dropped. And so we didn't actually talk at all until the day that I placed her in their arms. I uh, went to court that morning and it was, uh, it was January 4th, 2010. And I went to court that morning and got my daughter released to me. And then, and then my adoption caseworker who had come down from Portland, which is about an hour and a half drive. She'd come down from Portland for the court hearing. And then we drove around town and hung out for a while because of course my daughter's adoptive parents had to get on the road. And um, at that point we were also waiting for uh, a notary public from her office to come down to witness me signing the papers. Let me stop you right there real uh, quick. Did you have any thoughts? So you had the court release your daughter to you. Was there even Mm -hmm. one thought in your head that, Hey, maybe I could do this. This My daughter's with me now. Or were you, your mindset was already, your decision was made. My mindset was very much to good. Now I can get this done. Now I can put her where I feel she needs to be. Awesome. It was very much, it was very much, um, for me personally, there was no, I was so firm in my feeling that, that my daughter should not be without me, but not be raised by me that, that, that I didn't have any idea once they once they released my daughter to me that I could that I maybe I should do this maybe I should parent maybe I should you know and I'm sure that Nick would have liked I know that Nick would have liked to parent um he actually he released his because he was um named father um he basically had to release 
his or say that that I could make the decision that I wanted to make from Iraq. He could not head to the states. He was stuck, and so so he kind of knew that there was no possible way to fight it. But um, but it was only after he met my daughter's parents that he that or our daughter's parents that he uh, was better with the decision. Yeah. So he didn't try to talk you out of it before that. He just, just no, he didn't. He knew at the time that it was probably the best decision because of where I was and where he was and, and just figuring out logistics and all that kind of other stuff and getting me to a place where I was prepared to be a parent was, you know, you know, I didn't even have a pregnancy to figure it out. It was surprise. (laughs) You're a mom. (laughs) So, so it was, you know, he took all that into account and kind of thought, well, yeah, I'd love to raise my own kid, but, but, um, but, uh, it's logical that we do this basically. And, uh, his family is actually still pretty mad at him for not fighting it. Um, his, his sister has scolded him multiple times and he's like, um, this was the decision that was made. If you can't approach it like an adult, then we won't talk about it. So they don't talk about it. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, so there was, there was, uh, there was, there was absolutely no doubt really. I mean, there probably was, but I was so focused on, on, uh, doing what I felt needed to be done that, that I didn't, didn't even allow myself to think of any alternatives. And, um, so we met up at, uh, at the local department of health services office and, um, and, um, and, uh, my daughter showed up about an hour before her adoptive parents showed up. And I spent some time with her and she was actually awake. So I spent some time with her and, and fed her a bottle and, and talked to her and told her that I loved her. And this was not because I wanted to get rid of her. Um, because I think that's important too, because, because even though, even though they cannot understand physical words at that point, you know, because their brain isn't built to make those connections yet. I think that it's still important for it to be said, even when they're tiny and, you know, they don't understand, you know, and I have always, I've always, my daughter's parents have actually encouraged me to, to, I've asked them, but they've encouraged me to, I write her letters every year on her birthday Oh, that's cool. and they put them in a special box for, um, they read them to her too, but they put them in a special box for her so that, she can have them when she wants to refer back to them. She's only three at this point. So she's still pretty young. Um, but, um, but she can, so she can have them when she, you know, what gets older and wants to look at them. And I basically reiterate that this is not me trying to get rid of her or deny the fact that she was my daughter or anything of the sort that I love her. And I felt that this would be a better situation for her than, than, than the one that she would have been in had she, had I parented her. And that'll be so and, important to her as she grows up. That's just going to be like gold to yeah. her. 
So that's really cool you did that. So I, I got you yeah. kind of distracted. Let's go back to relinquishment day. You, you were, uh, well, you were talking about that. You were waiting for the adoptive parents. They, so they came yeah. in, and that's the first time you met I them, signed right? papers. That's the first time I met them is that is um, they came into the room, and um, I was holding my daughter at the time, and I stood up, and we all kind of, awkwardly says hello I mean you know it's what I, what do you say on a day like that you know it's like you know you just kind of you're just kind of wow you know the the I'm sure that the impact of the day was not lost on them sure yeah somebody had to break the ice and just get the conversation going <laughs> exactly. right <laughs> exactly so we we sat and um I sat in the middle of them and we kind of chit-chatted, and then at one point, I I was still holding my daughter, and uh, at one point, I turned to my daughter's adoptive mom and and handed my daughter over to her and said, "Do you want to hold her?" And um, and and my caseworker had actually told me before they got to the to the office that that uh, if I met them and was in any way uncomfortable with them that it wouldn't happen that that they would tell them to go home and that we would figure something out basically and so um but she told me later my caseworker told me later that when i handed my daughter off to my daughter's adoptive mom that that was kind of her signal to say yeah i like these people basically you know, and so uh, my daughter's adoptive mom held her for a while and then handed her off to my daughter's adoptive dad. And um, I missed it completely, but uh, but but uh, my caseworker told me later he did one of the you know sort of things, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I missed it completely. I mean, I was totally oblivious to that whole thing. So, so uh, he held her for a while, and then um, they went off into another room to sign the paperwork that they needed to sign, and uh, I stayed in the same room with my daughter. And, um, and signed TPR at that point and, um, terminated my parental rights. TPR is termination of parental rights. Yep. Mm -hmm. So I signed TPR at that moment. I became a birth mom. Um, I was not a birth mom before that, <laughs> but at that moment I became a birth mom when I signed termination of parental rights. And was that um, really a surreal moment in your life? I and mean, when you were saying totally. that? I mean, how did totally. you feel when you were signing that paper? When I go back to it, I mean, I was, I was relieved at that moment because I was like, this is, this is what I feel is necessary. And now I can do what I feel is necessary. And, um, I cried a little bit when they went, when they went to go sign paperwork and, uh, told my daughter again that I loved her. And after I signed paperwork and after they signed paperwork, they came back into the room, they changed their diaper and I kind of, <laughs> kind of <laughs> hovered because I felt like I knew more about changing his diaper than they did. Because <laughs> of course I was a nanny and that was my specialty was infants. So I was oh. like, okay, I know how to do this. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and so, but I just kind of looked and kind of chuckled to myself and, you know, 
this is the new parent fumbling around sort of thing. And, uh, and then we all walked off, uh, walked out to the parking lot and they put her in their car and left. And, um, and I just felt relieved. I felt like this is good. This is the way I'm supposed to be. It wasn't until later. And I kind of attribute, I attributed it to missing Nick, but I think that there was a mix between, between missing Nick, which I'm sure I did. And, and the realization that I was not my daughter's only mom anymore, Right. that there was another mama and uh, that there was another mama that she would call mom. And, you know, that's a, that's a huge thing during after relinquishment is, is probably, I mean, even though I was relieved at relinquishment, it is probably the hardest thing I have ever gone through. And I can guarantee that if you talk to any other mother who has relinquished her child, she will say the same thing. I bet. Because, because that realization that, that you cannot do the job you are felt that you, that you feel you are supposed to do, that you either you've been coerced into the decision, forced into the decision, or you've made it willingly. Um, that the realization that you cannot do that job that you feel you are supposed to do with every fiber of your being is really hard to talk about. It's really hard to figure out. It's really hard to take in. In fact, my daughter didn't get her first cold until, until almost her first birthday. And when her adoptive mom told me that she had a cold, I broke down because I felt like I should be there. I should be comforting her. I should be fixing it. And, and I can't fix it, you know? So, and, but, uh, but, you know, at the same time, I know that I made a good decision. I can't tell you that it's the right decision or that it's a, that she's in a better place than she would be if, if Nick and I were raising her because, because no one can say that you can say it's different but you can't say that it's better or worse because because that would change the whole thing. That would change the. I mean, if if I had parented instead of relinquished, my my Nick might have not left the army. He might still be in the army. He might not. I mean, there's no guarantee that he would still be in the army regardless. And and you know, so that would have changed our whole lives. Just just for that one decision, and I think that there's a pitfall that a lot of a lot of birth mothers can fall into is is thinking that their child is better off without them or with them or would be better off with them. You don't know, you know. I know another. I know another. I met another birth mom recently who who um, has an open adoption relationship with her child and her child's adoptive parents, and. Um, she and her now husband, well, I mean, they've been married for a while now, make more than her child's adoptive parents. But I told, I'm, I like, I tell her that I told her, you know, when I, when I met her that, that you don't know that you would have been provided the same opportunities if you'd raised your child. Doesn't mean that you would be an awful parent. I'm not saying that at all. And I wouldn't say that about anybody because it's not my thing. It's not my choice. It's not my, it's not my ability to say that. However, however, 
you don't know that you would have had the same opportunities provided to you to if you'd have raised your child. Yeah, I think that's a very important distinction you made there about about birth parents or or parents who have relinquished as compared to adoptive families that it's not necessarily a better place for your child, mm-hmm. but that decision you're making out of love at that point in your life is your decision mm-hmm. uh, for the betterment or for you feel is better for your child at that moment. Yep. So at that that's moment. a huge, yeah, huge distinction to make and for adoptive families to understand. Mm-hmm. That they're, and I think that that's an, an important thing to think about too, because I think adoption as a whole, and I'm not speaking specific agencies or anything else like that, does tell the re, tell the whole feeling that that people who decide to adopt are somehow better than the people that are relinquishing their children. But I think that there's a general feeling like you're taking on someone else's child as your own. You're the hero for raising that child. And um, and I disagree with that. <laughs> no, the opposite is the opposite is really true. Is that you are giving the gift to your daughter. You're giving exactly. that parents, those parents are you, the gift you're giving to your daughter. And that's how we all should be looking at it. Uh-huh. That's, that, that's another thing. You bring up the whole gift thing, because I think that there are, I mean, I don't necessarily, my, my daughter's parents may feel like I've given them a gift and I don't have a problem with that, but I didn't think of it as giving them a gift when I relinquished my daughter. I thought of that, thought of it as giving my daughter the gift of parents who are more prepared to parent her than I was at the time. That kind of focuses it on the child and not on either set of parents. Like, I don't want to be thought of as a hero either. Because I don't feel that way. I feel like I'm a parent who made the best decision she could for her child at the time. Yeah, I agree. And that's where you said it right there. It is focused on the child as this whole adoption process should be. So that was a very Mm -hmm. powerful, powerful message right there. So let me uh, talk about a little bit after relinquishment now. And your daughter's three years old and you have an open uh, rela- open adoption relationship with them. Can you talk about mm-hmm. that? What that's like? Yeah, sure. Um, I, uh, I, my daughter lives about two and a half hours away from where I currently live by car. Um, um, and, uh, so visits aren't necessarily and, and oftentimes a event. They're busy people as are we. And, uh, so we don't see them very often. However, when we, when I initially relinquished the only communication that I had with them was letters sent through the agency. It was update letters sent for the agency. And there was an understanding that, um, visits would happen as well. But my understanding was that that would probably be set up through the agency as well. Um, and um, and um, we, I got my first update letter from them about April, I believe it was, March or April. I still have it, but I don't remember exactly the month of this one. 
Um, and then we met for the first time after relinquishment in July of that year of 2010, right after Nick came home from Iraq. Um, he came home the 5th of July and we met them on the 10th for a picnic down in Portland. Oh, what a call. And uh, the, the adoption... The so my caseworker for for the whole adoption was there, um, and uh, we just sat and talked and interacted and and Nick met his daughter for the first time and um, and got pictures. My caseworker was you know taking tons and tons and tons of pictures. <laughs> That's her thing. She likes to take pictures, and so um, we just sat and had a picnic and talked and and later my daughter's adoptive mother actually told me that she kind of felt rushed into saying goodbye because we have, I mean we said we we stayed there for quite a while but when it when it finally broke up we kind of felt like like my caseworker and she, I don't know whether she did I'm sure she didn't do it on purpose necessarily but we both kind of felt rushed into saying and actually saying goodbye and actually you know like you know, taking our time or whatever we wanted to do, like, like it felt kind of like it did the day of relinquishment. Like, like I was uh, not allowed to see their car because, you know, I might turn into a crazy stalker or something like that, <laughs> you, know? <laughs> like, you know, I mean, and I realized that there are people that relinquish that do turn out to be that way, but I don't think that that's the majority. No, <laughs> In no. fact, I'm pretty sure it's not. Um, and it kind of felt the same way almost in July when we had our first visit post, post relinquishment was that, was that she was afraid that I might do something crazy. And so she wanted to kind of head that off before it happened sort of thing. And, um, you know, and I can understand where she's coming from, but, but, but I think that that's probably why we both felt rushed into saying goodbye. And at that meeting, I had actually joined Birth Mom Buds and I am now, now a member of the board of Birth Mom Buds. And, and uh, it's a great community, online community of birth moms, mothers who have relinquished their children to adoptions. And um, the founders are actually birth moms. And uh, they created it so that so that people could figure out they weren't alone, because there is still a really big societal stigma against mothers who have actually relinquished. You know, once you know, it's all good, well and good when you're considering. You know, you're giving your child life, you're giving your child a better life. But then at once it's once once relinquishment actually happens, we're shunned because we gave away our baby. Yeah, how could you do that? And right. How could you do that to your child? And, um, and, um, so, so, um, I had met, I had started, I had joined the online community of birth mom buds. It is, uh, online. They have a uh, for private forums for birth moms only, um, as well as a Facebook page that anyone can like in the adoption con- constellation and does. And they have a website that's accessible to anyone as well, but the forums are private and, um, and uh, they have a hosted chat on Monday nights. The chat rooms are open 24-7. However, um, usually usually Coley goes in there. Um, Nicole Strickland goes by Coley, one of the co-founders of Birth Mom Buds, is in there so that 
she can provide kind of a buffer if some if situations get really emotional. And at that point, one of the one some somebody and I were talking and I don't even remember who it was at this point, but one of several of the birth moms that were in there this particular night and I were talking and and somebody said something about email. And I was like, that would be a cool way to commu- communicate. They could set up a, an anonymous email address. I mean, I still you know, don't know my daughter's last name. Um, they, I think that my daughter's adoptive parents are comfortable with the idea. However, my daughter's adoptive mother's mother, so her, her maternal grandmother, um, lives very close and is heavily involved in life, and she's a lot more cautious about this whole adoption thing than they are at this point, especially at this point. <laughs> so Even so three years we later, still don't know their last name. We still don't know their address <laughs> um, because we might show up unexpectedly. So, you know, um, that kind of thing, which I kind of find ridiculous, actually. But, you know, whatever, that that's their thing. That's, the, you know, and I don't think... Like I said, I don't I'm, don't think that it's my daughter's adoptive parents. I think it's the fact that they don't want to make waves with grandma. And I can kind of understand it because I actually met her. So I can kind of understand where they're coming from. Um, but uh, so I put a bug in their ear in July when we met them for the first time. And I said, if you want to set up an anonymous email address to communicate, I'd love to do it that way. And uh, didn't give them my email address or anything like that because I figured that way they wouldn't feel any pressure to do it that way if they weren't if they weren't comfortable with that. And I had sent them a letter after I got after I got my update in March. I had sent them a letter back and I just said this is what I've been doing since relinquishment, you know. And I responded to some of the things that they'd said in their letter about my daughter and. And, you know, just a, just communicating back because I do feel that it should be a two-way street. It's a relationship just like any other. And it should be not about, like what I just blogged about, it should not be about what birth moms get out of the relationship. It's what they give in addition to what the adoptive parents give, you know, that, you know, an adoption a relationship, an adult, open adoption relationship is, is much like any other relationship. You know, if you have a friend who expects you to do all the initiating of contact and whatever else, you know, have meetings and then there's no, then, then you very quickly get tired of that sort of relationship and you feel used. And I never wanted my daughter's adoptive parents to feel used. They're not just a, a means to get me to my daughter. I value them as people and I value them as her parents as I placed them there. I mean, my decision of them choosing them as her parents and my decision to relinquish legal parenting rights in favor of them placed them in that role. And if I don't honor that role and if I don't honor them as people, then it doesn't, doesn't work. And uh, so so I, at that point, I said, I left it open. I was like, you know, I'd love to communicate via email if you'd like. You can set up an anonymous email address, whatever else you want to do. But, but, you know, that would be really cool. Well, in August, we, um, the Boys and Girls Aid has a picnic 
for all adoptive and birth families who have relinquished through the agency up to five years. So it's five for five years after placement. Um, there, they provide food and a place to to get together and hang out, um, meet other people, meet other you know, birth moms can meet other birth moms and adoptive parents can talk to other adoptive parents in the agencies and in the agency and things like that. So really it's cool. a big, yeah. you know, it's a, it's a, so we met my daughter's adoptive parents there again in August. And at that point they gave me an email address and, um, and, uh, for the first couple of months, my daughter's adoptive mom and I were sending long emails back and forth <laughs> at least three days a week. Oh, wow. That's <laughs> um, cool. Just because we were, we just talked about a lot of things. We got to a point where we were, you know, and I still, it's, it's become more sporadic just because I'm busier and she's busier and things like that. But we still talk fairly often and, uh, and um, now that we both have smartphones, I can, well, I can text her, her email address when we get together for visits and things like that to let her know where we are and that kind of stuff. So it's, it's a little bit more convenient and it still, it still allows them to be anonymous, not necessarily because, you know, we don't know who they are, but because, you know, because of you know, it's their information to provide or to not provide, you know? So that's kind of where things are. Yeah, that's cool. I, I think that's such a great idea, especially given the fact of your situation where it's yeah, maybe not uh, so easy to have visits or talk on the phone. So right. I think you guys, right. that's a great resolution and you never know where it's going to go down the road. You may, it may open up to yeah. more stuff. So I think that was a perfect, yeah. perfect well, solution. Well, and honestly, I, I hope that, Nick and I are planning to get married in Seaside, Oregon. When we do, he has not proposed yet, but we've been talking about it for years, so it's just a matter <laughs> of when. However, um, we want to get married in Seaside because I want to get married on a beach. <laughs> this, is, this is my, well, not on the beach, but I want to get married near a beach. And I want to have beach pictures of me in my wedding gown. And so, so um, that's kind of something, I mean, I always, I've been married before. He is not, but I've been married before. And after I divorced my ex-husband, um, I thought, if I ever get married again, I'm going to elope on a beach. Well, this is my compromise. I want to get married on beach. <laughs> I'm not going to elope, but I'm going to get married on beach. And so, and the other reason is that seaside is not, too far from Oregon, uh, from Portland, where the from from the Portland area where they live. They don't live in Portland, but they live in the Portland area, and so it's not too far from them. And I'm hoping that that my daughter will be able to participate in our wedding, oh, that would be and perhaps really my daughter's adoptive mother as well. I have not directly approached them about this, so if she's listening to this at some point, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> like we haven't talked to you about it already, um, but uh, but I'm hopeful that that they will be a part of my wedding because I really just. I really can't imagine getting married without them there That's so because cool. they're family. Yeah. They're, they are family. I mean, that's yes, the hugest are. thing is that they're my daughter's family and my daughter is my family. Therefore they are my family. You're forever connected. You know? Yes. Yep. We're forever connected. Even if, even if an adoptive, even if a couple or 
a, a single for that matter, because that does happen as well, decides to cut off all communication or doesn't have any to start with in the case of international adoption or whatever, you're still connected to that child's biological family, whether you want to be connected or not, because that child is their biological family. So to your daughter's only three right now, so she doesn't really probably doesn't refer to you or able to talk to you yet, or maybe she, she does. She does talk. She does talk. Um, she calls me Monica and her birth father, Nick. Um, she does, she does know us. She knows us by name and, and I'm uncertain how much talking that they have done to her about who we actually are. Um, because, but I do think that, and I've run into other adoptive parents, other birth parents, whatever, that feel the same way that, that instead of having the one big talk when you feel like they're old enough to understand, you just make it part of their daily existence. These are who these people are, especially if you have an open adoption. These are who these people are, and this is why they're important in your life. Just like just like you would introduce them to grandma and grandpa or aunt or uncle or cousins or whatever. These are who these people are, and this is why they're important. Yeah, our and, daughter is six. I'm sorry. You know, our daughter is six. I just wanted okay. to interject a little story here to explain that. Our daughter is six, and from the time she was able to, I don't know, she was probably less than one year old, but... We would uh, say our prayers at night, and then we'd also tell her an abbreviated story, her story of uh-huh. how uh, she came mm-hmm. to be part of our family and who her, and her, of course, part of her story is who her birth parents are. So yes. as she gets a little exactly. bit older, during, you know, every time we tell that story, just get a little bit more information and more information uh-huh. to the point where now she's, yeah, now it's, it's part of who she is. And she asks more as she hears more exactly. stories she's like, Oh, well, what about this? Or what did you, what did you say to my birth mother when she did this? Or, you know, that just helps uh-huh. the story just progress as she gets uh-huh. older. Well, and it also empowers her to talk about who she is, because I think if, I think if adoptive parents, and I don't know this for a fact, but I've heard enough stories to kind of prove this, this thing is that I think if parents decide to wait or adoptive parents decide to wait until they feel their child is old enough, that it doesn't empower them to talk about who they are beforehand, that it becomes like the child kind of, kind of might feel like their their story is something to be ashamed of. They might know they're adopted, but that might be all they know about. And they might feel like, well, that means, you know, once they figure out that they didn't grow in mommy's tummy, once they figure out that they grew in somebody else's tummy, that means they have a whole nother story. They start to figure out, oh, that's part of who I am. My dad was raised in a closed adoption. And he was raised with a lot of shame about who his biological parents were or are. We don't know. They, he's never reunited. He talked to his, mo- his, his mother about it when he was 40. Um, and his mom had a cow about it. Basically, she had been, she had been falling for the lie, basically, that, that if your child who is adopted asks, or who was adopted asks about his or her biological family that you have done a bad job being a parent, that your child should not ask about his or her biological family because you're the only family that matters. 
And and that was the lie that a lot of adoptive parents, especially in the closed adoption era, fell for. And it wasn't their fault necessarily, but, you know, I'm sure that there were some parents and are some parents who probably still believe that. And I found that through through my research and through my encounters that it actually it actually strengthens an adoptive parent's relationship with his with their child if they encourage that relationship with their biological family. I agree. Whatever, however, they can encourage it, even if they're even if contact is impossible. You know, international adoption or whatever. They don't know who the biological family is. They don't have any way to contact them. You can still encourage a child to explore his or her roots. You know. And and that actually can strengthen the bond that you have with your child. And so I think that, you know, that that's one of the hugest benefits to an adoptive couple or parent uh, of open adoption is that because you're encouraging your child to explore his or her biology, that that child goes, well, that means my mom or dad or whatever appreciates that part of me that he or she did not give me. And that means that the part of me, that part of me is okay. You know, and, and that's huge. You know, Lori Holden in her book says that, and in her on her blog too, um, which is lavenderlose.com, um, that, that open adoption heals the split between a child's biography and biology. Who you are is your biography, how you're being raised, who you're being raised by is your biography and who, where you come from is your biology. Powerful. And uh, that part of you is very important just as the biography is, you know, they're both important. And if you're, if you're raising a biological, biological child or if you're a child being raised by your biological family then there is no split but in adoption the split happens yeah so good stuff yeah Yeah, very good stuff (laughs) Uh, no no it's really good stuff for adopted parents to hear and understand and one more thing before we wrap it up i wanted to make sure we cover this is and you and i've been talking about this for a while uh and both of us have been online actually uh talking about it in 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 different Facebook groups, but we we had mentioned and discussed the word use of the word birth mother and mm-hmm. how really accurate it is after relinquishment and not accurate before relinquishment because right as you and I've talked about you are not really a birth mother until you give birth and when you give birth and you actually relinquish. That's the day you, like you said, that's the day you became a birth mother. So Mm -hmm. what we want to talk about a little bit here is the use of the term and try to get people to understand that really a mom that is expecting is really that. And and it's Mm -hmm. like you were an expectant mother who was considering adoption. And I know Mm -hmm. a lot of people use birth mother just as a kind of an overall generic term to encompass everything in the adoption world, but that's not really accurate. So if you want to Mm -hmm. just talk about that a little bit. Yeah, it's not an accurate assessment. Uh, Before relinquishment, you're not a birth mother. You're a mother. 
you're an expectant mother. I mean, you know, it depends on, you know, you're, you're a mother regardless, you know, people call you an expectant mother if you're pregnant, but, but you're still a mother. So calling somebody a birth mother is not what she is, regardless of how firm she seems in her decision. And if an adoption decision is made before the birth of the child, she has to make it again once that child is born with all the hormones and with all the emotions that come rushing in and multiplied after that child is born. She has to make that decision again when everything in her is saying, I need to raise my child. Yeah, I need to parent. She has to make that decision again. So no matter how firm she seems in her decision, and really it's a serious decision. So you don't want somebody who has considered adoption to be waffling in extremes back and forth between parenting and placement. You want them to be you want them to be as firm as they possibly can be in a decision like that because it is a huge decision. It's a huge decision that impacts you and that child's life forever. I mean, yeah, that, it, and it affects everybody around you. Yeah, I mean, I've been through two adoptions, or my wife and I have been through two adoptions, and I, I understand that, and I, we've seen them actually really do make two two decisions where mm-hmm. before and then actually at the time of, of birth or when you're able to sign your relinquishment papers, but mm-hmm. I've never thought about it that it really is two decisions and they're both it's difficult. <laughs> it's not. Yes. It's not like you're making one decision and it's done. Uh-huh. You had to finalize that decision. I mean, it's kind of, in a way, it's kind of like um, calling somebody a husband or a wife or a spouse or whatever you call them before the marriage actually takes place. Yes, it's kind of accepted. And in that situation, it's usually a fun thing. You know, both both parties in that situation kind of think it's a fun thing. Oh, you're going to be my husband or wife or whatever. Um, and that's cool. So you can call me husband or wife or whatever until we get married. But it's not what you are. Then that official title does not happen until the paperwork is signed, until the legal paperwork is signed, making you that person's spouse. And it's kind of that same idea where a woman is not a birth mother until she makes her adoption decision legal. And before it can be, and there, there are, and I didn't realize this before it happened because I didn't even know what to call myself at the beginning. I had no idea I was a birth mother. But uh, as I've gotten more involved in the adoption world, I've realized how coercive that term is when you're talking about somebody who has not relinquished yet, because they still have every right to change their mind. If something comes in at the last minute and they feel like, well, this is what I've been waiting for. This would allow me to parent whatever that is. I mean, even if it's an emotional shift, this would allow me to pray to parent instead of relinquish. That is their decision to make until those documents are finalized, signed and then finalized. However, the, if there's a waiting period in a state a particular state or whatever, then she still has every right to go. No, this is my kid. I want to raise it. And, and so in calling 
somebody a birth mother when the paperwork is not signed and finalized is not a woman coercive to her because she feels like she's trapped into making that decision now. No matter what changes in her life, people are already calling her a birth mother. That means she has to give up this baby that she's carrying that, or that she's given birth to, for that matter, that she has to give that child away because she's already being called a birth mother and she's got all these people who are calling her this and, you know, this kind of stuff. So it's not only coercive to her, but it creates an extra expectation in the adoptive parents because the adoptive parents go, well, this is, this is our child's birth mother. And she's not a birth mother yet. And I think that, well, there needs to be hope from an, from a hopeful adoptive parent perspective. I mean, I, I'm not saying you shouldn't hope at all, but well, there needs to be hope from that standpoint. It's not, I think having expectations is turning that hope into expectation is what, is what there's a big difference is that whole that whole, you know, that's part of the reason why I don't like paper pregnant and things like that in relation to adoptive parents feeling that is because that creates an extra expectation and then they can turn that feeling into entitlement. Uh, this is our kid when it's not, you know, even even if the legal, if the decision is finalized, made legal, that kind of stuff, it's not only your kid. It's still that biological mother's child. It's still that biological family's child. Well, I think um, it's very important but, that you're making this distinction because adopt, not only adoptive parents or hopeful adoptive parents, but also expectant mothers and especially people like yourself, birth mothers, have such a power to change the terminology. Uh -huh. Words do matter. I know some people may think, oh, boy, mm -hmm. this is just being a little extra sensitive, aren't we? No, I don't think so, because open mm -hmm. adoption in and of itself is such a new thing. I mean, we're not that far removed from when it was totally closed, adoptions. Mm -hmm. And so we have the power right now, today, and moving forward to change that terminology to mm -hmm. be more accurate and more sensitive mm -hmm. to all parties involved. So I'm very glad exactly. we're bringing it up. Exactly what you said. And I do actually think that hopefully adoptive parents have much more power to change terminology than even parents who have already adopted or expectant parents. Expectant parents are kind of, they're still kind of think, thought of generally, and I'm not speaking specific people or specific agencies or whatever as a tool. Say a match takes place and an expectant mother or a mother who has not made that, you know, who has not finalized her decision yet calls herself a birth mother. You can say, no, you're not a birth mother. You know, as a hopeful adoptive parent, you can correct her. You can say, no, you're not a birth mother yet. He may make that decision. And, of course, we would be, you know, we would become parents if you choose us. And we would like that. But, but, but you're not a birth mother yet. Yeah. And any adoptive parents should not feel like, oh, but I don't want to make her think that. She, it's okay if she if she's not strong in her decision. No, I think that en enables her to feel more comfortable in her decision because you are mm -hmm. recognizing her and you are actually giving her respect by, by basically correcting yeah. correcting the term. You're giving her respect. 
Mm-hmm. And you're empowering her to make that decision about herself. And so it kind of, it gives her the reins back and it does show her respect. Like you said, it shows her that you respect her as a person and not just as a tool to get you the child that you want. That's good stuff. I'm I'm very glad that we covered it because it's, it's an important topic for people of all places in the adoption world to understand. Mm-hmm. So before we go, I wanted to ask you, where obviously everybody can find you on your website, musingmonica.com. Mm-hmm. What, um, mm-hmm. what other projects or other stuff that you got going on? Your member, I guess you said you're a member of the board of birth mom buds, which is really cool. Yep. I'll put the link in the show notes there for people to check out that, that website. Great. But what else do you have going on? Um, like you said earlier, I was quoted in Lori Holden's The Open-Hearted Way to Open Adoption. And I was quoted in her book several times. And I am also working on a book about open adoption myself. Awesome. I, am, uh, I am surveying parents, uh, adoptive parents, both adoptive parents and birth parents and adoptees, as long as they're old enough to do it without mommy or daddy's help and fill out a survey um, about their experience with open adoption. My goal in publishing this book, once I get it published, is to help demystify open adoption. I think that there's a lot of mystery that still surrounds that whole community of people who have, you know, there's still a lot of fallacies that go into it. There's still a lot of fears and doubts that, you know, I mean, that are understandable coming into the idea of open adoption from a point of view of a hopeful adoptive parent. And I help to kind of demystify it. These are actually people that are living it. And this is what happens as well as share my own experience with it because I think that that as long as one's heart is in the right place, the actual practice of open adoption can vary very widely from Absolutely. from yes. experience to experience. My experience is different than than even Nick's experience and we have the same open adoption. I know a an adoptive mom who has adopted two um, daughters and uh, one of her daughter's birth mothers lives fairly close to them and the other one lives in a in a state that's about four miles four hours away by plane so um, they don't see each other that often in person but they still manage to have a good relationship and her daughter knows who her birth mother is and and they Skype and they, you know, they have, so that relationship is going to be different than somebody else who maybe, you know, I mean, I know another birth mother who lives within five minutes of where her son and his family lives. And, you know, <laughs> so, so they have a different relationship entirely because they live much closer. It's the same kind of idea. That's cool. That's so. going to be pretty powerful stories. And I look forward to reading that book. I think it's going to be awesome. You've already <laughs> demystif- demystified open adoption just in our conversation today. So I have no <laughs> doubt you're going to do it on your book. So thank you for sharing <laughs> <my> that. Home. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for sharing your story because it is so powerful mm-hmm. and you have such a heart of, uh, of a wise person you can tell you love your daughter so much. And I just mm-hmm. want to um, 
just say that you're just a, a very special person for going through what you did, making the decision you did, and just being so wise and caring and loving for your daughter. It just shines through, and your passion for adoption and uh, helping other people out is just awesome. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And we will uh, be sure to put all the links in the in the show notes, and please be sure Fabulous. to go check out her blog. It's very worth reading. You get a lot of articles, good stuff to read Thank there, you. So. <laughs> Thanks, I'm Monica. I'm glad you think so. Okay. <laughs> we'll talk to you soon. Okay. Well, that was an awesome interview with Monica, our very first birth mother on the Infant Adoption Guide podcast. I really, uh, it was just so incredible to hear her story. She's such a powerful story. So I hope you really enjoyed that. And if you did, or if you have a comment, something you're thinking about after hearing that interview, go on over to the website, Infant Adoption Guide dot com forward slash zero zero eight and leave a comment there i'd love to talk to you with you about uh, whatever's going through your mind and maybe that sparked something a question or something you have going on in your adoption journey um also you can join me at facebook uh, at facebook.com forward slash infant adoption guide or you can uh, follow me on twitter we can talk there too my twitter name is tim the number four adoption those links are also on my website. Um, also, if you would be so kind as to help me get this podcast into ears of more adoptive families just like you, if you head on over to iTunes, you can leave me an honest review of what you think about the podcast. It's easy to do, and so I appreciate you taking the time to do that. Um, the links are also in the show notes there to go over to iTunes, um, and uh, it's pretty easy to leave a review. Um, I just wanted to wrap this episode up with a question. Uh, what do you look for or what is what comes to mind when you hear this birth mother story? Uh, what do you think about when it comes to open adoption and, and building a relationship with an expectant mother that you will match with and, and she will become the birth mother of, of your child? If you head on over to the, the show notes again and leave a comment there or let me know on Facebook as well. I'd love to, to chat about this. So um, thank you so much for listening. I really enjoy doing these, these interviews and these podcasts. And uh, I just, I think it, one more thing I wanted to add. If, if you would, uh, on the website, if you want to uh, opt in to, to get more email updates and to get my 25 tips for uh, surviving the adoption weight, this is what I'm giving away right now. And uh, it's just a really a cool little document that'll, give you a bunch of tips and links to survive the adoption weight because it's so difficult to get through the weight when you're uh, wanting to bring home that child of your dreams. And uh, it may seem like it's never going to happen, but if you stick with it, it will. And hopefully those uh, adoption tips will help you in that process. So thank you again so much for listening until the next episode. Remember to stick with your adoption plan and you will realize the dream of becoming parents. That dream will come true for you soon. God bless. Bye-bye.